Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited about today's podcast with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And this time I mean it. I served with uh, Sheldon on the Judiciary Committee and really got to know him as a brilliant legal mind, as a politician in the best sense, and as a friend. Uh, I think, I know you're going to enjoy this one because he really knows what he's talking about. Sheldon was U.S. attorney for Rhode Island uh, before he became senator. He wrote a uh, book a few years ago, Captured, and it's about the capture of our government, especially the regulatory agencies, by uh, corporate interests. Uh, I think people know there's a revolving door in D.C. It's It's bad. Uh, the pattern is, of course, people serve in a um, oh, regulatory agency, say the FCC, and they may make a favorable decision for, say, oh, Comcast. Then, lo and behold, uh, a few months later, uh, they've got a nice high-paying job in Philadelphia working for Comcast. Or they don't have to move. Uh, to Philadelphia from D.C. They can just stay in D.C. and put out their shingle as a lobbyist. I, I saw some ugly stuff. And this is Democratic administration. I saw a guy, um, head of an agency, I won't say. I uh, became a lobbyist. And during a regulatory matter that I was very, uh, on one side of, very involved in, I, I eventually won, but this took a long time. This fellow was paid by a huge corporation, on uh, whose side I was not, uh, he was uh, paid not to lobby for the company's position before the agency uh, that he headed, but to stay on the sidelines. In other words, uh, this big corporation paid him a lot of money not to do anything. As we say in Minnesota, must be nice. In this podcast, we uh, turn our attention to the federal courts, and it's very ugly, very disturbing story, but uh, one that I, I think uh, you'd be really glad you listened to. Uh, so we will turn to uh, Sheldon Whitehouse in a couple minutes, but I, I wanted to tell you about uh, an experience I had here in uh, New York City in Manhattan on the subway um, at many times of the day. It's just a lot faster to get around New York City on, on the subway. It's also less expensive, and I like the subway. So um, after recording the interview with Sheldon, I got on the uh, subway at Times Square, 42nd Street, took the express going back up to uh, 72nd Street, and uh, to get, it was a little crowded uh, that time of day, and uh, I, I got on, and I wanted to sit down. I did. But blocking me 
Well, it was a little crowded, so I, I needed to get past a guy who was sitting in front of a pole, and he was leaning forward a lot uh, and uh, reading his phone, almost deliberately blocking anybody who wanted to get past him. And he looked kind of, he looked a little, a little angry, uh, kind of like Eminem, but without the talent. No, ta- uh, like a no talent Eminem. He was uh, kind of blondish, short, uh, reddish hair. He was wearing a University of Miami muscle shirt and um, looked, wasn't thrilled with the guy, but I was very polite. I just said, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, I'd like to sit down right there, and I was wondering if you could just pull back a little and let me pass. And he seemed irked by that, and uh, but he did pull back just enough that I could uh, get through, and then I sat down, and not directly across from him, but one over from that. Well, um, he wasn't wearing a mask, and uh, we start up, and I'm thinking, I wonder if he's going to put on his mask, and of course he doesn't. So me, uh, I I guess like an idiot, I just say, um, excuse me, sir, this happens to me a lot. I uh, get on the subway, and I I forget that I haven't put on my mask. I just forget that, and so I was wondering if you could uh, just put on your mask, and he says... Do you want me to fuck you up? So now, uh, a lot is going through my head. Okay, first, no. That's that's the first thing that's going through my head. No, I don't want that. Uh, secondly, uh, now it's I, part of your, my brain is, uh, I guess, the flight or fight, and there's nowhere to go. So maybe the fight thing gets going. And, and I think to myself... You know, I was a high school wrestler. 53 years ago. <laughs> so I said, I could get, I could go, I could go for his legs. I know how to do a t- shoot a takedown and uh, probably get him on his stomach. But then I think, no, look, I don't want, uh, he's young and he looks kind of strong and really angry. And I don't want my press to be Al Frank gets the shit beaten out of him on on the two train i just don't want that so i uh this is what i do i don't say a thing uh but i uh, as a concession to my maleness i hold eye contact (laughs) and do a kind of really with my eyes now just with my eyes because i got my mask on but that's as much as i can do that's Anyway, there's a lot going on in me, and I can't define it at all. But so then, beat, beat, the guy across from him next to me says to him, you really should put on your mask. And uh, talentless Eminem says, I've been vaccinated. And the guy says, well, we don't know that, first of all. And secondly, it's the rules, so you should put on your mask. And talentless Eminem just just goes back to looking at his phone. So now I know I got at least one other guy with me, okay, on the train. So this emboldens me (laughs) to say, and you know what? You really shouldn't threaten people. At which point the guy sitting next, the other side of talentless Eminem is really ripped. I'd say he's 510 maybe 200 but really ripped this guy with tattoos and 
he says this. He says, okay, everybody cool down. <laughs> and I go like, yes, that's who we need. That's who we need in this country. We need that guy. Everybody cool down. Everybody cool down. A little bit, um, you know, it, it's easy to get angry at the people who aren't getting vaccinated. And I am. I am. And I'm, I'm really mad at the Tucker Carlson's who are feeding them this bullshit. But anyway, that, that happened a couple of days ago. Uh, and now before we uh, get to Sheldon, uh, I just want to say uh, another thing, which is I'm going on tour this week. This coming Saturday, I'm going to be in Northampton, Mass., it's the beginning of my 15-city tour. Uh, you can go to alfranken.com to see um, which cities I'm coming to. If I'm coming to your city, you can get tickets. And I hope you come. It's uh, it's going to be a great show, I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Sheldon is on. Uh, I want to clarify one thing. He uses the word amikai, um, uh, amikai. Uh, it's from amicus, which means friendly. It's like amicable or amiable, it's like amicus. And so he uses it a lot. And, you know, Sheldon thinks he's on Preet Bharara's <laughs> podcast. I think a lot of my listeners know what amicus briefs are. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick, we've had on, uh, talks about, uh, I think her podcast is uh, called Amicus or something like that. And uh, But I just want to clarify that because he uses it off the bat pretty pretty often. Okay, let's go to Sheldon Whitehouse. This is going to be a great one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Thanks for doing this, Sheldon. My pleasure, Al. Really delighted to do this. I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about uh, the judiciary. Um, there was an amazing uh, decision by the court from the shadow docket, but the whole 
court weighed in, a 5-4, to keep this Texas law in, going in play, which bans abortion after six weeks. What the hell was that? That was a very strange um, episode of what is called the court's shadow docket, which is when they make significant decisions that affect real people, but they do it at an early stage in the proceedings before full briefing, before argument, very often on a very short clock so that parties uh, who are interested can't come in as amici. It's being done on very little information. And in that low information, high speed environment, what we've seen is a a strong predilection in favor of certain interests getting, uh, as we'd say in politics, helped out uh, by the court. And this is a perfect example of the court helping out the uh, anti-abortion, anti-women's rights lobby. When you're talking about there's no one writing uh, briefs, for them to read, there's no arguments before the court. There's no amicus briefs, which are literally friendly briefs on one side or the other. You would think that something this momentous would, would uh, you'd want to have that, wouldn't you? Yeah, and you'd think that the default proposition until you had that would be don't make a sudden and violent change that deprives the women of the entire state of Texas, of an established constitutional right. Another big one was getting rid of the clean power plan at a very early stage in the proceedings, which they did for the fossil fuel industry. Again, you know, one of the telltales of these is that it's all the Republican appointees who are doing it. I I guess I should say all Republican appointees who are doing it because on the Texas case, Roberts. Roberts bolted. He, he didn't bolt because he's pro-abortion rights. He bolted because this is ridiculous, right? Yeah, I think he has an institutional <laughs> uh, feeling for the court of which he is the chief justice. I think he'll um, try to get away for these big special interest donors with everything that he can possibly get away with. But when the spotlight is a little too bright on something, he will um, veer towards prudence to protect the integrity of the court. Yeah, he's a crafty little devil, isn't he? Yeah, he's a slick operator. And as you remember in the um, case on Obamacare, while he upheld it, he also stuffed in two or three little prizes for the right wing in the decision, which would have been big news had they happened in another case. But because all the noise in that case was about upholding Obamacare, the attacks on the Commerce Clause, the uh, diminution of the power of the federal government with respect to funding of states and requiring conditions on funding. Um, Those things went virtually unnoticed. He's a a crafty guy. Specifically, you're talking about uh, every state was going to get expanded Medicaid, right? Yeah, the specific things I'm talking about is that he took a big whack at the power of Congress through the Commerce Clause. Um, by saying that we couldn't do this unless it was a tax. And then he took a big whack at the power of Congress to demand terms and conditions of federal funding that goes out with his so-called anti-dragooning principle, which we haven't heard of since, but I'm sure it's going to be dragged out at some point. 
What, what is the anti-dragooning principle? Uh, it is that once states are getting money from the federal government, there's a limit to how much conditioning the federal government can put on the money that it gives to states mm-hmm. so that they're not being dragooned into doing things that they don't I know what dragooned means. I just didn't know the principle. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. it. That's it. You can't put too yeah. many conditions on federal money. You know what I, I don't get on this? And maybe uh, you actually, I was on the Judiciary Committee, but I only played a lawyer in a sketch once. But I think that qualified me more than some of my colleagues on the, on the committee. But how, how can you say the Commerce Clause doesn't apply to health care when on the Civil Rights Bill it was lunch counters, well, they get meat from every, you know, you don't know where the ground beef was from, and therefore the Commerce Clause applies but holy mackerel, the idea that healthcare, you're not getting instruments, medicine, everything from all over the damn place. Uh, how does he justify that? Or he doesn't have to, I guess. Doesn't have to. That's the great thing about having those robes and a lifetime appointment. You don't have to justify anything. You can always run off to the Federalist Society to give speeches about how wonderful you are. Uh, speaking of lifetime appointments, uh, Kavanaugh. Uh, you famously uh, have uh, demanded that we find out about the tip line, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, explain that, sir. There was an enormous amount of information about Kavanaugh's bad behavior. And the FBI was in charge of assembling that information and looking into the specific allegations of Dr. Blasey Ford And they weren't doing much in that regard. And in fact, we were getting a lot of reports from people who said, look, I tried to give my information to the FBI, but nobody would accept it. Even like law firms who represented people saying, we've never seen this kind of behavior from the FBI before. They're the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They usually want information. It's rare for them to close all of the gates and not let information in. So a number of senators started to complain to them about what the hell, why have you pulled up the drawbridges and are not accepting information? This is very unlike you. So then they let down one little drawbridge, which was a tip line, so that all the Kavanaugh-related complaints could go through this tip line. And of course, being the FBI, they have a procedure for tip lines and how everything's supposed to be treated and where the information goes and all of that. And in point of fact, none of those FBI tip line procedures were followed which we suspected because we never saw any of the steps that were supposed to take place. And they finally admitted under President Biden that it was essentially a fake tip line in which all the tips came into their tip line bucket. And then without anybody taking a look at it at the FBI, they marched the tip line bucket over to White House counsel. Don McGahn. Precisely. Where the tips went obviously right out into the dumpster. If you did a cartoon of it, you'd see the tip line coming through the, you know, into the FBI and immediately rerouted over to the White House and immediately rerouted into a dumpster. So there was no real tip line. There was no real investigation. And that raises, I think, significant questions about Justice Kavanaugh. And it also raises questions about 
well, why are we supposed to trust the FBI with background investigations, which we do all the time, when at their pleasure, they can simply take derogatory information about somebody who's before Congress for confirmation, and instead of giving us the derogatory information, they run it over to the White House so the White House can put it in the dumpster. That's not a good system. And would the chain of command there include the president? And could the president just said, just send us the results? I have no idea. Those are questions that we need to answer. It would be nice to see the chain of command all the way from the FBI agents who were conducting the so-called Kavanaugh background investigation up through Christopher Wray and over to the White House counsel. What they have said is that they aren't the FBI when they're doing FBI background investigations. They're just a White House agency doing as they're told. But that's not entirely true because we believe they actually have FBI background investigation procedures. And we're going to look into whether they actually followed those. I rather doubt it. Stay on that, would you? Oh, don't worry. Okay. Um, I I, want to get to Capture of the Court. Yep. And you you wrote a book called Captured. And I really like your book, Captured, because uh, Washington, to a great extent, is captured. Yep. Your book is more more on regulatory capture. Um, I think Americans kind of instinctually know that there's sort of a revolving door in Washington and people go into uh, regulatory agencies, uh, leave and get jobs with the businesses they were regulating. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that people legitimately don't trust the federal government. I think that gave Trump some some of his support, don't you think? Yep. If you look at agency capture or regulatory capture, it goes by both names. It's got a long history. There's been a lot of academic work analyzing it. It's a field of study in administrative law. It's a field of study in economics. It's a real thing with a long and rather grim and sordid record (laughs) of unhappy experience. But we've always, for some reason presumed that the folks who are trying to capture a regulatory agency wouldn't go mess with courts. They might mess around with administrative agencies, but courts are different. Courts are special. Courts are sacred. You know, courts get to follow the law and should be allowed to do that and shouldn't be treated as an agency that you try to capture. Well, that happy idea has been, I think, dramatically disproven as powerful special interests have put a lot of money and a lot of secrecy and a lot of mischief into a decades long plan to guess what? Capture the Supreme court and have it become a court that will reliably do its bidding. And I think that's what we have right now. And one of the things Al, that drives me crazy is when people talk about it as a conservative court, which it isn't, they can be recklessly aggressive and activist. And they commonly blow through what are considered conservative judicial principles. Like in the Texas case. Like in the Texas case. And what they really are is captured for the benefit of some big Republican donor interests. And, 
you know, decision after decision that they've rendered violates principles of conservative adjudication. But at the end of the day, the winner ends up being the politically conservative group. And so which I think we really need to think about the court in the way you think of a captured regulatory agency that the industry runs rather than as something that has like legitimate ideological differences and is true to its ideology. And a, a big part of this is a Federalist Society, of course. Yeah, they, they held, they, they, were, they hosted the turnstile through which the last three Supreme Court justices came. Extremely rare in the world to have a private organization become the turnstile for access to a country's Supreme Court. Extremely problematic when that turnstile at the same time that it's providing that service is also accepting massive anonymous donations. The idea that there's no link between massive anonymous donations and who gets through the turnstile is naive in the extreme and goes against all evidence of uh, human conduct and nature. But that's what we've done. I mean, if some other country did this, we'd probably like laugh at them and send memos saying you really need to clean up your act, kiddos. Well, but we you did know, it ourselves. What, what the Feral Society does is advance hundred percenters. So you can't depart from what the Feral Society doctrine is. And this starts in law school. And if you're a good boy or a girl, you get a clerkship. And then after your clerkship, your prestigious clerkship, you go to a prestigious, i.e. very high-paying law firm. And then if you decide, oh, I want to be a federal judge, <laughs> then they steer you there. And, of course, Trump pledged to only pick people for the Supreme Court who were approved by the Federalist Society, who were listed by the the, the Federalist Society. That's why I always thought it was funny. Like, do you remember Lindsey Graham and Gorsuch was going like, have you met President Trump? Did you meet him before? Your No, I hadn't met him before my, uh, my interview. If he had said to you, I want you to overturn Roe v. Wade, what would you have said? And he said, I would have stood up and walked out that door. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. Yeah, not because he wasn't out to overturn Roe v. Wade, but because that would have been very bad manners of Trump in the also question lying. of Gorsuch's sensibilities. And I kick myself a lot for not going like, oh, you're a smart guy. Uh, you've always wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Really? You would have stood up and walked out of the room instead of saying, uh, Mr. President, I would suggest that you look who sent me. <laughs> I mean... You need, to, you need to finish the rest of the sentence. I would have stood up, walked out of the room, gone immediately to see Leonard Leo, who runs the court packing scheme at the Federalist Society, told him, you know, the president went too far. Could you please let McGahn know, the White House counsel, that I can be counted on on this stuff, but you can't make me say it in the Oval Office for Pete's sake. I had to stand up and get out. My point is that he was lying. First of all, the president wouldn't ask him that because as dumb as this president is, he, <laughs> he would have known. Dumb. He would have known. And they asked Coney Barrett that, too. Uh, did you ever talk to the president about Roe v. Wade? Uh, no, I did not. Well, you don't have to. 
The Federal yeah. Society picked you. <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were pre-packed and pre-picked on that issue. You don't need to make it overt in the Oval Office. That's why Lindsay's question was dishonest, and while why Gorsuch's answer was dishonest. But I mean, that was a little bit of drama. That was pretty theater. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of theater. Okay, so this capture now, uh, on top of regulatory capture, uh, judicial capture, just explain, if you will, some of the uh, results of that and why they're crippling us. Well, one of the results, um, I wrote a paper that backstopped all of this. So I'm just not making this all up off the top of my head. We looked at all the Supreme Court decisions that were decided five to four with all of the Republicans on one side, the winning side of the five to four. And it turned out under Chief Justice Roberts, there were 72 of them, which is a lot of Supreme Court decisions. And when we looked at the 72 of them, we noticed that the five to four partisan decisions had one other feature to them, which was there was a pretty obvious Republican donor interest that anybody with the least political sense could figure out was in fact a Republican donor interest. And then the really telling fact was that of those 72 five to four partisan Republican decisions with a Republican donor interest in the case, they won them 72 to zero. They didn't even throw a few bones to the other side to try to like cover their tracks, 72 to zero. And then they ran up the score to 80 after my article. So it's an 80 to nothing route for big Republican donor interests, and we kind of slept through uh, it. So, so of the 85-4 decisions, they're all Republican decisions. Yep. 80 to, 80 to zip. Quite a really? score. Quite a score. Yeah. And some of them are big ones that everybody knows, you know, like Shelby County. Oh, the, boy. That undid yeah. the preclearance provision. Citizens United that let unlimited corporate money into politics. Um, there, you know, there's some famous stinkers like that. But when you're up to 80, you've got to go well past the famous stinkers and you've got to start looking at patterns and what they're out to do and how they're doing it and what their targets are and why the same side always seems to win. Um, just the pattern itself of 85 to four partisan decisions, 80 to zero in favor of Republican donor interests is something that we should have been giving a lot more scrutiny to. One of those was mandatory arbitration. One of their main goals is to keep big donors, big corporations out of courtrooms. Because when you're in a courtroom, you've got a jury and the jury is one and done. If you try to fix it, it's called jury tampering. It's a crime. They're sworn not to talk with anybody. You can't call them up or call their brother up and say, hey, you got to help me on this matter. And... That's the way juries are supposed to be. That's how they give equal justice. But if you're a big, powerful corporation or a big, powerful billionaire donor interest, the last thing you want is equal justice. By God, you paid to have primacy in the Congress. You paid to have the Republican Party do what you want. You paid to have access to the Oval Office when the other side can't. You paid to have 90 lawyers in the administrative proceeding where the other side has one. You love having it be unequal. And so this whole business of being in courts is really tiresome. And the court has been very, very solicitous of trying to get as many things that would ordinarily be civil jury trials as possible. 
out of courtrooms. And one way is to let companies redirect them to corporate paid arbitration. Even if someone wins in arbitration, which people sometimes do, it's secret. You can't even tell anybody the result. It's rare. You don't get punitive damages if you're entitled to them. And it's basically you're entering in. One of the arbitration companies was so crooked that the attorney general, I want to say of Michigan, along with a bunch of other attorney generals, actually sued them and forced them to shut down. That was in Minnesota. Well, there you go. I got as far, I got as, I got the MI right, and then I... Yeah. Well, Michigan might have done as well, but Lori Swanson, who was our AG, did it. And I chaired uh, hearings on this. And you would have a woman who went to arbitration, and she was a doctor, and she was suing the hospital because they didn't advance women at all. And she goes in for the arbitration and to this lawyer, and on his shelf behind him, there's one... Uh, binder after another with the name of the hospital on it. <laughs> all of his cases, all of his client work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautiful. They, you know, it's like, come on, guys, at least try. Try to hide it from people. It's not just the Federalist Society that is receiving big anonymous donations and controlling the turnstile. You then go... I kid you not, down the hall in the same building from the Federalist Society to something called the Judicial Crisis Network, which also is funded by big dark money checks, like as big as $17 million from one donor. And they do all the advertising that puts pressure on members of the Senate to confirm the person who the Federalist Society down the hall had selected. And then once the Someone person- Someone must have felt very passionately about that. So donate. Yeah, can you imagine? Million. And, you know, because it's an anonymous donor, you don't know whether it might be kind of the same donor behind a bunch of these 17 million, 15 million, 12 million dollar checks. Somebody could have written 50 million dollars worth of checks to control the makeup of the United States Supreme Court. And nobody knows who it is. So we don't know what business they might have before the court. And there are big things that go before the court that could be worth a lot more than 50 million dollars. That could have been a prudent little investment by some big special interest, and people should know that. And then when you get these people on the court after the anonymously funded dark money ad campaign, then all the amicus crowd shows up, the friends of the court, and boatloads of them are dark money funded front groups that come in in little flotillas of like 10 or 12 at a time to pass the word to the judges that were selected by them and campaigned for by them, what they now want the judges to do for them. And the record when they show up in these little flotillas is pretty strong that they win and the court does what they want. And again, you don't know who's behind these flotillas, but we've done some research and it turns out that a lot of them are funded by the same entities. So it's a coordinated little scheme of basically trying to trick the court and the public into thinking that this is a legit outpouring of sentiment when in fact it's an array of front groups that have been marched in by the same crowd to make orchestrated arguments in scripted chorus. Now, you, you mentioned Shelby County, and of course, uh, voting rights is uh, 
a huge issue right now. And you see uh, all these different states like, oh, Texas and uh, Arizona and Georgia and actually many, many states writing laws that are going to make it harder for people to vote or have their votes counted. I, I want to play something for you. You, you know Michael Carvin? You know who he is? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. a... Uh, he's, he's the front group mouthpiece uh, before the Supreme Court more often than I think probably any other lawyer. Okay, this is um, not very long ago, a couple months ago, uh, the court decided that Arizona's voting laws, election laws, their new ones, which were pretty, pretty draconian, uh, were constitutional. And one of them was that if you vote in the wrong precinct, your vote shouldn't count. It had counted uh, before. And sometimes there are many precincts in the same gymnasium. So it's actually easy for this to happen. So this is Amy Coney Barrett asking Michael Carvin, the Republican lawyer for the Arizona Republican Party, and she asks him, what's the purpose of discounting, of not counting votes that were cast accidentally or, well, that were cast in the wrong county? So let's play that. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis- ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. Okay, now, if... <laughs> <laughs> kind of a plain admission, some would say. Well, if there was any evidence of fraud, he would bring it up, right? So by saying this, he's going like, well, there's no fraud. That we know. There's absolutely no fraud in this practice of having people's vote in the wrong precinct and counting their vote. No fraud. Zero. Zip. We couldn't find a damn one. Nothing. But it works to our advantage politically. Now, I don't, I I wish I had the full tape because I I think Roberts might have gone, yeah, on the secret A. I mean, (laughs) and Alito wrote the decision supporting the changes, he said, well, we need to protect against voting fraud. Yeah. I mean, are, do these people care? They're on, they're on the script. It was in the dark money funded amicus briefs, what he's supposed to say. And they echo it quite uh, accurately. And if I could say, you know, this dark money business, the anonymous funding, it is all over voter suppression. There is a clip of an operative for a dark money group called Heritage Action that got out talking to the big donors and saying these voter suppression laws that were pushing through Republican legislatures all around the state, that's us. We were behind that. Very often, the state Republican Party didn't even know that it was us. The legislators didn't even know that it was us. We worked through what she called sentinels, local sentinels, so nobody knew that it was our hands behind all of these voter suppression laws. And to go back to our little friends at the Judicial Crisis Network, the thing down the hall from the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network has filed papers in Virginia to create a fictitious name for itself. And by that, 
That's actually a term of, of legal corporate art in Virginia. And the fictitious name for the Judicial Crisis Network is the Honest Elections Project, <laughs> which is a voter suppression group. You, it's, they always name it exactly the opposite of what it really is. So, And the guy who I mentioned earlier, Leonard Leo, who used to run the court packing scheme down the hall at the Federalist Society, once he got his kind of cover blown by a big expose in the Washington Post, he jumped out of the Federalist Society. The woman from the Judicial Crisis Network went down the hall to fill his position, and he jumped to the fictitious name group, the Honest Elections Project, to go out and do voter suppression litigation before the judges that he had helped pack onto the courts. So behind all this foolishness happening actually in the courtroom is all this other mischief going on with dark money funding through fictitious name front groups with a lot of the same people popping up in different roles as the situation demands. But you got to think it's like piano keys. Somebody's playing the piano keys. Now, a fictitious name, you say, is a legal term. Did they have to fill out a, a piece of paper saying, uh, we've decided on this fictitious name? <laughs> I mean, the, is, is that on the piece of paper? Correct. They actually changed their name to something else and then filed Judicial Crisis Network and Honest Elections Project as two fictitious names of the same organization. But all you're doing is moving the face masks around on the same creature, same office, same staff, same funders, same... All of it. It's just a question of, of uh, masquerade. So if that had to be argued in court, you would say, Your Honor, we put on the paper that this is a fictitious name. <laughs> I don't know why you're objecting or anyone could possibly uh, say we're dishonest. We yep. say right there. <laughs> yep. Wow. And unfortunately, we Democrats have been so kind of slipshod about going after this whole enterprise, this whole dark money apparatus, that this isn't something we talk about every day, that there is a fake voter suppression group that is a fictitious name that has the same personnel as the court packing scheme fictitious name group had. I mean, it's almost comical. You know, it's almost like a Three Stooges routine, except for the fact that we haven't bothered to call it out and expose it for what it is. And these groups go in front of the Supreme Court as if they're legit, as if this whole thing is not a scam. And the judges obediently nod their heads because they got put on by the people behind the scam. And then they crank out more of those partisan decisions, the latest one being the Texas decision. It's like the Three Stooges, though, get, um, you know, thousands of dollars an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're paid better than Moe and Larry and Curly. Yeah. They, they had their day, but yeah. Uh, but they bring more joy, these lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> they bring more joy to a very small group of very, <laughs> very powerful donors very small who are hiding group. behind the front groups and chortling about what they've pulled off in this country. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're back with Sheldon Whitehouse. Getting rid of the blue slip uh, sticks in my craw. Yep. Uh, You want to tell the folks what that was? So the blue slip is a Senate tradition that the Judiciary Committee would not go forward with a judicial nominee from a senator's home state or from a circuit court of appeals seat associated with that senator's home state unless the senator had given this largely apocryphal blue slip saying, I authorize you to proceed. Um, The blue slip still exists for district courts, but under Trump, the Republicans threw away their own authority and trashed our authority as Democrats in order to give their Lord and master full authority over appointing all circuit court of appeals judges, the level just below the Supreme Court. It's not often that senators give away their prerogatives. It shows how powerful the hold of Trump and of the dark money crowd packing these courts is over all of them. Um, But they did. And now the question is, with Trump gone and with Democrats running the Judiciary Committee and the White House, do we still honor the blue slip? Oh, no. Do we still at least honor it for ourselves? I didn't give it away. They're oh, the yeah, ones yeah, who wrecked yeah, it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, Democrats cannot turn in their blue slip. I, I, Yeah, I've said very publicly that I think we should honor Democratic blue slip still because we were never a party to getting rid of it. Yeah. It was the Republicans who chose to get rid of it, and now they have to live with their choice. They chose it, not us. And so no blue slips for them, blue slips for us. I was the guy they actually did it the first time with, um, and it was – Judge Strauss in the Eighth Circuit, uh, which was Minnesota's spot in the Eighth Circuit, one of them. And so they just took it away and appointed a a guy who clerked for Clarence Thomas, who'd been on the short list for the Supreme Court uh, from the Federalist Society. And so he goes in, but there were a whole bunch of judges, young judges, completely like literally kind of crazy judges 
guys who had done blogs. Like there was one guy who was uh, uh, who was a witness before me, and he had a blog where he did birther shit. And they, he's been nominated to uh, the Kentucky <laughs> uh, circuit court seat. And, and some of these are very young, and they're going to be around forever. Yeah, and the funny thing, if you have a kind of warped sense of humor, is that now the same Republicans who escorted all of these unqualified extremists onto these various courts are up in arms that we should be so outrageous as to nominate judges who might have said that they thought Trump was a threat to democracy. They have very selective sense of outrage. Would you do me a favor? If you're in one of those hearings where one of the Republicans say that, just could you say, okay, two things. One, uh, you guys approved a guy who said that Obama was not born in the United States. And two, Trump was a threat to democracy. Exactly. We were actually, <laughs> that was actually a true statement, even if you don't like it. Yeah. And, and by the way, he proved it. Yeah. January 6th sort of proved it beyond any doubt. So I don't get your point. <laughs> I mean. We miss just, you, Al. Yeah. You guys won't say that shit. <laughs> Somebody, I, I know, I don't want to get into this, but after Amy asked him, do you ever black out? And he went, no, do you? And then she goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let me blah, blah, blah. let me ask it again. Have you ever blacked out after that? No, have you? I was always after Amy, and I would have gone to, I think it went to a Republican, it came back to me. I, I, I kind of would have gone like, you just yelled at a U.S. senator who asked you if you had blacked out you know, twice. And it tells me that you're a little defensive about your drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you have this skill so that you can pull that kind of stuff off. So you think everybody has the skill to pull that kind of stuff off, and we don't. Well. But you did, and you do. Damn it. Uh, you, I, I could teach you. <laughs> it's First of all, listen. I'll start with the groundlings and work my way up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then also, then there was a thing which is, remember uh, Mark Judge, his friend, one, one of the four witnesses? Uh, he said the four witnesses had refuted Dr. Ford's charges, and they hadn't. All they said was they didn't remember the party, including Mark Judge, who she had put at the party. I don't remember every party I've been to in the last 33 years where nothing happened to me. Do you, Judge Kavanaugh? I didn't think so. And Mark Judge wrote a book about blackout drunks called something like Diary of a Blackout Drunk. And in the book was Bart O'Kavanaugh. And then that takes us back to where we started, which was the FBI background investigation into all of this, in which they did not run down the derogatory information, in which they limited who they would interview, in which they pulled up the drawbridge of the FBI to new information. And when they had to let the drawbridge down, they made sure all the new information got dumped 
into a bucket to be taken over untouched to White House counsel to be dumped into the dumpster over there so that nobody ever took a serious look at any of these charges. He was just rammed through with a fake FBI investigation. My understanding was that uh, Coons and Collins was who they consulted with because Collins are very concerned about her vote. And, um, of course, she had been satisfied <laughs> when Kavanaugh told her that uh, the right to an abortion was settled law. And she Which brings us back to Texas. And, yes, and, and she emerged from that. He said it was settled law. Well, I know, but settled law means the Supreme Court has ruled that. By the way, Senator Collins, you're sending him to the Supreme Court. Did you know that? You you were, of course, a federal attorney, U.S. attorney from Rhode Island. Let me ask you about the Texas law. Because as far as I can tell, it's now precedence that you, you can't stop a woman from having an abortion until the fetus is viable, which I think was at least at three months. But They've drawn it at six weeks, which which seems unconstitutional. But then what they've done with this law, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's they are enabling citizens of Texas to sue people involved in that abortion, like the doctor, the clinic, the woman, and get a bounty from the state for $10,000. That seems really hinky to me what yeah. is how does that work and what 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 is the, i mean i don't how is that okay i don't think it is and i actually i'm glad to see the justice department saddling up to go down there and fight these cases because it seems to me that the law that protects women seeking to go to clinics from being unduly and improperly harassed would apply to an individual who has no stake in the outcome, is not related, has, has no real standing as a, as a party involved uh, to just decide <clears throat> that they want a $10,000 bounty and so they're going to go sue a person. And if you go even further back, you've got the Ku Klux Klan Act, which talks about individuals, you know, riding out on the highways to deprive Americans of their constitutional rights. In this case, the original group was African-American folks in the South who were under the grip of Jim Crow. And this was the defense against, you know, the night riders who would come and harass them and threaten their constitutional rights. So it seems to me that between those two statutes and a whole bunch of just regular kind of common law doctrines, I would rather be on the Department of Justice's side in that litigation down in Texas. It seems to me like the state couldn't directly write a law and pass a law saying no woman can get an abortion after six months. They could not do that. That's unconstitutional. So the difference here is that they've written a law where anyone can sue anyone involved with this abortion and get $10,000 from the state. That, to me, I don't know. Again, I only played a lawyer in a sketch. 
But it seems like there's some real constitutional issues in terms of what states can do. It doesn't feel to me that states could do that. Flip it and imagine if this was a Second Amendment case and some other state said that anybody who buys a gun is vulnerable to being sued by somebody and there's a $10,000 reward for filing the lawsuit and all your legal expenses get paid, you'd find Texas pretty up in arms, uh, so to speak, about that. And I don't think it would fly at all. But that's basically the process that they've put in place in Texas, not to mention that it kind of makes them agents of the state. And it's there's a whole other body of law about when you can delegate your authority to somebody and how the state shouldn't be able to get around that by delegating its role to a private party when it's still trying to act as a state here. So we'll see. Like I said, it's going to be complicated. There's a lot of doctrines that pertain, but I would definitely rather be on DOJ's side in the litigation in Texas. Except that does this ultimately get to the Supreme Court? Yeah. And I mean, do they give a shit at all? It has to. And then the question is, (laughs) you know, do they... When you look at what they just did in the Americans for Prosperity Foundation case, which is the dark money case actually involving a dark money political entity, where they basically said there is a constitutional right to dark money, which nobody had ever managed to notice in the Constitution before, the lengths to which these judges will go Uh, when they get the right signaling from the big donor interests, is pretty astounding. By the way, that Americans for Prosperity Foundation dark money case, that was a record setter for the dark money amici showing up. There were 50 briefs, 5-0, 50 briefs at the certiorari stage, not even at the like full argument stage, just as the, at the should we take this case we, yeah. stage. Certiorari, granting cert is, yeah. is the court Agreeing saying we'll, the we'll, we'll hear it. So the big, like the anti-labor case, like Janus, there may be 10 or 12. The New York guns case, there may be 10 or 12. We've never seen 50 before. So that was a pretty strong signal that this case really matters to us because dark money is our weapon of choice. It's what enables us to do all the other dirty work that we do. So you better damn well take this case and you better damn well rule in our favor. And sure enough, they did. Interestingly, Americans for Progress spent money, millions, to help get Justice Barrett onto the Supreme Court. And there is a Supreme Court case that requires recusal when you're hearing a case involving somebody who spent millions of dollars to get you on the court. She didn't address it. She didn't recuse. There was a specific request for her to do it. And Americans for Prosperity Foundation and Americans for Prosperity are side-by-side twin organizations doing the 501c3, 501c4 dark money shuffle that we see throughout uh, the dark money operation. So judges can connect the dots between Americans for Prosperity and the Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the spending by Americans for Prosperity for Justice Barrett And they couldn't resist. They just had to go ahead and do that decision six to three. They didn't even need her. And they still, she still wouldn't recuse. Do you remember the moment, and Amy asked her this uh, in her confirmation hearing, is voter intimidation illegal? 
and Connie Barrett paused and said, I don't know. (laughs) And I kind of went, how do you not know? How do you not know? You're a federal judge. You taught law at Notre Dame. Everyone knows. And then Amy produced the the damn law, right, the statute. And so I, I texted Amy. I said, tomorrow when you start, say, Judge Coney Barrett, I'm sorry I started you out with something so hard as voter intimidation. So let me ask you this. I'll do an easier one today. Grand theft auto. <laughs> Is that legal? Oh, well. If you had done that, everyone in the courtroom laughs or in the hearing room, except, and, and Coney Barrett even has to kind of go, ha, 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 that's very, uh, that's funny. And it's basically saying, are you kidding me, lady? Lady. <laughs> I mean, part of it is being a performer, you know. Yeah. Having been a performer. My favorite Franken moment was when you had Zuckerberg in the chair and asked him about political advertising and what did you It wasn't think? him. It was the, the chief counsel uh, from Facebook. <laughs> what did you think when you saw payments for political advertisements coming in denominated in rubles? Well, they had taken these ads, <laughs> taken rubles. <laughs> and I said, you guys, you know, in Silicon Valley, you brag about having all the data in the world, just having historic amount of data, doubling data every year, you know, all this data. And you couldn't put together rubles <laughs> and political ads that maybe the Russians are paying for him. And then I asked him if he would pledge not to take rubles for political ads. And he wouldn't. And then what part of his thing was, well, you can convert any, any currency to any other currency. Uh-huh. And why would anyone convert it to rubles? <laughs> he was a. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Facebook cleaned up its act and agreed that it would only take money from U.S. entities and it would insist on knowing who the entity was that was paying. But another concept, the Shell Corporation, completely fooled them and stunned them and tricked them. So they don't actually require the buyer of political ads to disclose who they really are. All you have to disclose is the name of the entity through which the payment was made. So if you set up a Delaware Shell Corporation, Boris and Natasha LLC, then Facebook will say, oh, okay, this ad was paid for by Boris and Natasha LLC. It's a Delaware corporation. We're good. No further questions. Run the ad. That brings me to uh, Section 230. Is there enough will to change that in Congress? My feel is there's more than enough will to change it. The problem is once you've agreed that you're going to get rid of Section 230, which is what protects these big platforms against liability like every other company, every other media outlet, what makes them special. 
um, that if you're going to strip that, the next question is, okay, well, then what, what should you replace it with? And that's where it gets into a partisan and complicated struggle. But I think on the pure question, should we get rid of Section 230? You've got a route in favor of getting rid of it in the Senate. So it's kind of like whose definition is hate speech? And yeah. is, is that it? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, there's some. <laughs> I don't think that should be that hard. But I, I guess there are some hate speakers in in Congress uh, for, on the other side, I guess. Yeah, you and you get into issues like, you know, if you're the parents of the young DNC staffer who was murdered and some idiot on right-wing radio says that that was all a hoax and a scheme, you can then sue that person and you win and they have to pony up and shut up. So the liability system works where there's an individual who's been harmed but if you're just the fossil fuel industry pushing climate denial out into the ether in a way that doesn't target or harm an individual, relying on the liability system to cure that may not be sufficient. So you may want to set some rules for disclosure about who's really paying for that kind of stuff on platforms so that at least American citizens get the joke and see who's behind the masks and can do their job as citizens knowing, you know, who's on what team. Well, here's, here's my argument. Facebook's business model is advertising. So their whole, the whole algorithm, the whole AI thing is they know you better than you know yourself because they know every click that you've done. So they know what's going to keep you on the platform. And so they direct hate speech to people who love to be agitated. Yep. They know what they're doing. Yep. They should be able to locate hate speech better than anyone. Yep. That's their business. Yep. And if somebody gets hurt by somebody who got agitated as a result of being fed hate speech by them, they could arguably sue them for their role in having deliberately and for money propagated their hate speech into that person's account on a regular basis and been a cause of the uh, injury that befell the harmed or murdered person. So I guess my question is, who's working on that? We're working on that in the Judiciary Committee, trying to sort through it. There are a lot of different bills mm -hmm. out there and a lot of different ideas. I'm working on an article on it right now myself to try to put some you know, light on a potential pathway through this. So we'll see where it goes. But the bottom line is, I don't think anybody believes that these enormous platforms now need to be protected like a community notice board in somebody's garage. I mean, the, the point is, is that, yeah, we, we have a First Amendment. People can say anything they want to say, except that you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that yep. happening. And we have to do something about that. Well, Sheldon, I know that uh, you have to go soon, so just want to say I miss you and miss seeing you. Yeah, I miss you too, pal. Yeah. It ain't the same place without you. And um, Who's the funniest guy there, Blumenthal now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Take care, my friend.
Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.